Hey, some of Midtown. Welcome back to our weekly podcast. I'm excited to be with Hannah Anderson as usual today, our visiting teacher, as we actually launch a new uh, kind of series here on vocation and calling. Uh, but before we get into that, um, what's happening in Roanoke, Virginia? Well, we have moved into summer officially. I mean, like, I know it's not summer on the calendar. We haven't yet hit June 20th, but uh, my kids finished up school. A lot of the schools have ended for the year. So um, we're in full on summer mode and ready for it, I have to say. <laughs> yes. And I assume that you, like the rest of, Anybody who can is looking for ways to travel and get out of your home or out of your context or do something. Yes, we actually slipped up to my folks um, in Pennsylvania this last weekend. Um, it was, you know, kind of a complicated trip. It was a memorial service that we couldn't have a funeral during COVID. So this was the first chance for us all to get together. But, um, you know, so it was sad in a way, but also we were like, oh my goodness, we are not in Virginia anymore. We are in a different state. We are in a hotel room. We are in a car five hours away. So it was interesting to um, just enjoy that getting out and getting away. It is surreal today. Uh, actually, last night, the city council in Indianapolis just voted to allow fully vaccinated people to be out in public, most indoor and all outdoor spaces without masks on. And so we're in this like in between kind of full reopening, partial reopening. Does anybody even care anymore? You know, but today I got my first haircut with at a barbershop, the barbershop I go to with nobody wearing masks. And it was like, okay, this is like kind of cool. You know, it's kind of, it feels right. Um, we're celebrating, but also it's kind of weird, you know? And so I think like everywhere we're going now in the community, you know, you're having to like relearn the social norms. I'm like walking into places like, are you guys wearing masks? Are you not? What's the new rules, you know, navigating that as a family, when you have some family members that are vaccinated, some that aren't, I mean, Oh, it's, it's going to be a fun, fun summer, fun next couple of weeks. My kids kept asking every time we were stop or we'd go to a place, do we wear masks? Should we bring them in? And I'm like, I don't know. Just, I don't know. Just go in and what you see happening. And so it's been, um, my daughter was like, I don't think I'll ever be able to go back to not wearing masks because I've just gotten so used to them. And of course, within like two days, like nobody's, yep, you're fully acclimated. Yeah. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, we're going to, we're getting there. We're getting there. It's, it, I think it's still going to be weird for a while, but I yeah. Well, I what's good. We're going to have a lot of uh, reckoning and sorting through what's changed. It's mm -hmm. going to take us a while, even as we get back to some normal social etiquette or social practices, there's still going to be a lot of things that happened in the last year to 18 mm -hmm. months that it's going to take us a while to, reconcile and figure out what exactly just did happen. And I think yeah. a lot of folks are going to find that their lives look very different on this end of things than they might've looked at the beginning. Yeah. That's going to be really interesting to see, which is actually a great segue into our topic today. Um, because I think as we look towards this new series and we talk about our callings, um, we talk about vocation, um, one of the reasons why we wanted to do this series um, as we wrap up our year of wholeheartedness and thinking about uh, living wholeheartedly within our 
our, our callings is COVID's changed things, you know, and I think we, people keep talking about going back to normal, but the reality is there is no going back. Things have been permanently altered. And in, in a sense, we're, we're creating a new normal. That's not going to be what it was. It's going to be something different. And so I don't know how you feel about that, but I think as we think, even think and reflect on our personal callings, our family callings, uh, our callings within our, our faith as disciples, there's going to be a lot of rethinking. There's going to be things that will change uh, inevitably that we have to kind of reflect on and think, okay, how do we, how do we respond to the new call that God is going is, is issuing into our lives? I think it has the potential to be very disorienting, to be honest. Um, I think we do want to go back to normal or what we knew uh, pre-pandemic. But even as we try to do that, we're going to find that there are so many things that were either ended or broken or just changed so much that we don't even recognize them um, again. And I think this, even in terms of just relationships, there were so many um, maybe friendships that were just starting that got cut off by the pandemic and you know, things have changed a great deal in our orientation toward each other, toward our homes, toward our jobs even. Some folks will probably find themselves working from home, um, even though they may not need to. I've heard of a lot of corporations who just are really going to take advantage of the fact that it's cheaper to have people working from home. So I think we're really going to see a lot of the details and the circumstances of our lives change, some within our control and some outside of our control. And there's a question here of how do we receive that? How do we go through that discovery process? How do we let it happen um, and not necessarily force changes, but also understand that there's some agency here in the lives that we recreate post-pandemic but there's also some just receiving what comes. Yeah. So it's not, it, we talk about, uh, it, we kind of talk about Sunday, um, as you know, we're co-teaching this and, and kind of planning this um, about this paradox and, and why we wanted to use first Corinthians as the lens uh, through which we see uh, calling and understand vocation. Because Paul uses this, this term Kaleo like 17 times in the book of Corinthians. It's a, one of the key themes there, but there's this paradox of, um, uh, providence and understanding God's doing something, God's initiating, God is calling, and then discovery, like our response to that and our even discovering what providence looks like in our lives. Um, and so, yeah, I guess talk a little bit about kind of the importance of calling in First Corinthians and how it can help us see uh, life a little bit differently as we begin to come out of the pandemic and we think about, you know, the choices that we're making, the decisions we're making in terms of our calling. Well, for me, in my own capacity to navigate the last year, year and a half, it has rested a great deal on trusting that God is sovereign even over the pandemic, that the kinds of things that have happened within my life, within the lives of the people I love, um, aren't happening apart from his care and provision um, and his his going before us in some ways to providentially arrange these things. And if I didn't have that um, piece in my, um, my understanding of those years and months, it would have been very, very, uh, it would have felt very out of control. It would have felt more than it already was, right? Um, and I think 
coming out of it, we've got to carry that understanding of God's providence forward. It's not just that he is active and sovereign over difficult circumstances, but that he's he's providentially arranging the circumstances of our lives, even as we move forward in things like our relationships or the communities that we're called to or the work that we're called to. But within that providence, there is also a level in which we are responding to the call in our of God on our lives. And so there's a level in which there's this give and take where we are discovering the lives that he is laying out for us, but we're also engaging in them and making choices within them. And I think that's what's so beautiful about the the passage we looked at, 1 Corinthians 1 through 9, you have this vision of God calling us, Paul called to be an apostle, but we're also responding back to him in that process, responding in surrender and obedience, but also responding in faith that there actually is logic and a cohesive kind of direction to this process. Mm. Yeah. So the basic idea there in first Corinthians is in a church where there's division, it's a very ambitious kind of prosperous uh, community, but diverse socioeconomically, uh, gender wise, you know, um, ethnically, just lots of diversity, but, you know, some real divisions. And so the invitation from Paul, right, is to see uh, and discern God's presence and his calling um, in both the difficult circumstances and decisions they're making, as well as um, those things that are, they're good that are happening uh, among them. But there's a logic, right, to Paul's understanding of vocation. That's a little bit different than how we tend to think about vocation when you hear vocation and a lot for a lot of people in our context, uh, in the modern West, it's, it's work, you know, it's how you make money. It's, it's your passion, you know, that you're supposed to, whatever that means, follow. Uh, so yeah, talk to me about just some of the, how the logic of Paul's idea of calling or what became known as vocation, um, is different maybe than the way we tend to see that. And how is, how is that experienced differently for different groups of people in our kind of modern society? You know, if we if we take them the kind of working definition that we use in the modern West, vocation becomes the purview of only a certain group of people, right? It's the people who can make choices about their lives and pursue a certain career or a certain pathway or certain work. And so I think the way we use the language colloquially actually limits the theological truth embedded in it. Because when you go to the scripture and you go to 1 Corinthians, you see Paul talking to people across the socioeconomic spectrum, across the gender spectrum. And he's using this core assumption that everyone is going to have some kind of call of God on their life, within their circumstances, within their lived experience, within their relationships, within their work. And so it's much more expansive to begin with. It is not the purview only of those who have power and control over their lives. And I'm afraid that when we tend to talk about this idea of vocation within even the church, we tend to make it what do you want to be or what are you going to choose? What are you going to create in your life? What are you going to pursue? And, and that really limits those who don't have as much control over their lives or the circumstances of their life um, maybe falls under kind of oppressive categories and they just don't have the same equity or 
or capital within the society to move and change and make the choices, whatever they want um, to create some kind of vocation. So I think what's beautiful about the way the scripture portrays vocation, especially in First Corinthians, is that it's very, um, for lack of a better word, egalitarian. It's very equalizing that no matter who you are, no matter what place you're in, you have a call of God upon your life and he is active and working within the circumstances and the details of your life to bring forward your capacity to love him, to love others and to reflect his glory as an image bearer. Mm. So I think that's one of the first things that's really foundationally different is that it's not just for a select few, that this, um, the way the scripture thinks about vocation is for all people everywhere which was the original you know kind of idea right when when uh mr luther uh and the reformers really grabbed hold of this doctrine of vocation and brought it to the forefront uh in the 15th 16th century it was really about democratizing vocation right it was taking it out of the context for, uh, in that time in the medieval church which was really about you know monks monastics uh you know clerical clerics um full-time ministry people right that was kind of like the highest uh, form of vocation. And then you had everybody else that was basically like the ATM machine to fund the ministry for those who are in full-time. They said, no, like every, everybody has dignity, every work, especially, I think, you know, Luther was really writing to more blue collar working class folks and saying, Hey, what you do matters. Right. Um, but that's not how the conversation unfolds oftentimes today. I mean, when you think of some of those for whom the vocation conversation maybe is overlooked now, so, so to those who do have choices and those who do have a, a at least the illusion of control and, and self-creation, you might say, hey, there's a need to surrender to the providence of God to see God's call in this and not just your own kind of uh, self-initiated, self-created choices. But to those who maybe don't feel like they have those choices, who are uh, maybe who hold less social capital or less power, the invitation might be to understand that God is calling you to and giving you choices, even though you're not creating. So when you think about some of those groups that may not may think this conversation doesn't apply to them, who, who comes to mind? Well, I definitely think um, um, the narratives that women are given both in the church and outside of the church and how they need to be reframed. So within the church, I do think women are often given very narrow definitions of vocation. And, and we will be told things like, um, your highest calling is as a wife and mother, perhaps. And there's that language of calling. And, and we, we couch it with saying highest as if there, maybe you can do other things, maybe. Um, but that sends a really bad frame, both to those who are called to be wives and mothers and to those who aren't, because it creates this vision that the primary mechanism that God is going to be at work in your life will be through familial relationships. Now he will be at work through familial relationships in one way or another, even if it's as brothers and sisters to each other in Christ, but it's not exclusively that. But what happens in that conversation is because we frame it that way, I think women, first of all, don't know to think about other ways that God is at work in their life, perhaps outside of those roles or they feel like the things outside of their family are in competition with those roles. Like their vocation somehow um, has to start here at home and then 
if you get your work done, Cinderella, maybe you can do other things. <laughs> and, and so it, it really misstates and misunderstands um, that vocation is much more encompassing um, and that it is the call of God on every aspect of your life, whether it's your familial relationships or your body or your mind or your work or your gift and your capacity or the community that you're called to. And it's much larger than just one um, avenue. At the same time, in response to that, sometimes you'll find within secular spaces, this vision of women having the pressure of self-creation, that it, there, there's kind of a rejection of familial roles, and there's this girl power, right? Or there's this girl boss vision of the powerful woman who's climbed the corporate ladder and made something of herself. And Leaning in. I, yeah, I think that really puts a lot of pressure on women because mm. it becomes the only viable way to express your vocation. Like you've mm. only done it well if you've reached these heights or if you've taken this route. And so in both cases, I think women need a much more diverse and, and complex understanding of what it means to be called into a certain life by the Holy Spirit and empowered to live out that life, to love God and love others through the Holy Spirit. And it's not something that other people are empowering. It's not something that we're taking on for ourselves. It's something that God is calling us to, and we are answering um, the call through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm. Talk to me a little bit more about how you've navigated that, because you you are a mom. Obviously, that's one of your vocations. You also are an author. Um and you work in ministry, um, you know, to a degree you you've had different, different opportunities to see this conversation through multiple lenses. Um, and I know that you and Nathan have, have worked hard You and your husband, Nathan have worked hard to, um, support each other. And I think oftentimes I'm thinking, especially for married couples, you know, I think if, depending on what Christian space you're kind of being raised in, I think in a more conservative Christian spaces, the focus tends to be more on the, the man's vocation and work. Um, and, and kind of the woman's, the wife maybe comes secondary. Um, that's becoming less and less common, I think in more urban spaces like Indianapolis, where, um, you know, you have two people who are trying to figure out their callings and it's, but they're, they're kind of individualized, you know? And so talk to me about how you guys have navigated that and, and, and kind of integrated those and in, in how you're seeking. I know it's never, we never arrive at this, but just how you guys are seeking to, integrate those into a shared sense of your callings, uh, both individually and then together, you know, as, as you've kind of journeyed through this in the Christian world and then within your own family. Yeah, it has been a journey and we haven't always known what we were doing or recognized what was happening in the process. We, we've tried to faithfully respond to the call of God on our family, on ourselves as individuals, but there have been a couple of things that actually guided us without us recognizing that we were being guided that direction. And ironically enough, one was working in um, lower income spaces. Um, so socioeconomics became a way for us that forced us to understand calling better. And this is what I mean. We um, have worked primarily in churches where the idea that a woman wouldn't pursue vocation is just ludicrous because she has to bring money home hmm. and we've worked in spaces where maybe men are laid off 
of their jobs on a regular basis because they're in white uh, working class, you know, blue collar positions. And so for the family to survive, the wife has to be able to think beyond um, just the domestic realm. And, and it's not always a good pressure. I, I don't want to say that this is a benefit necessarily, but it does change the conversation and it reframes it. So in context of um, ministering in those spaces, as a pastor's wife, I was the rare person who might not be um, trained or working a job in the marketplace. I was the rare person who had the freedom to even choose to be domestic. And so what we found eventually is that removing that sense of choice, like we, we just didn't have the choice of saying, um, yeah, sure, Hannah can stay home and devote all of her energy to her domestic life. It became a matter for us as well, since we were in lower income spaces and our salary was being derived from lower income workers, that I started working for the sake of my family to to bring income in. And so I think some of the ways the conversation got trapped for, for other people or it seemed to hit dead ends were actually opened up for us and being in a slightly different socioeconomic setting that reframed the questions and turned them upside down. And then once I was in that space, you know, vocation is more than work, but it is also about exploring your giftedness and how best to work and how best to serve the world around you. Then it became a matter of finding the way that all of these different things um, became integrated with each other. What does it mean to work in this way? What does it mean to use my giftedness? What does it mean to support my family as a wife and mother in this way? And it's just been a lot of trial and error, but I think one of the blessings, unexpected blessings, was the freedom to reframe questions and to question the questions as they were delivered to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. When you think about, <clears throat> I guess, if you're if what, what advice or what, how would you counsel somebody who's just beginning maybe to think differently, who is beginning to reframe some of those questions that are handed to them by kind of the cultural context in which they grew up, either not thinking about vocation as a calling or not thinking about vocation in terms of a call from God and a response to God, but just thinking of it more in secular terms as what I do to make money or what I, what I do because I have to um, kind of survive. Um, or if you have somebody who is, um, you know, just begin in the process of trying to discover what are the gifts, what are the limitations, what are, what, what kind of personality, what kind of interests, you know, they're just beginning the process of dreaming within the sphere of God's providential working in their lives. They're beginning to wrestle with that. I remember when, um, you know, Emily and I came up kind of in a space where definitely the focus was more on my vocation. And I remember... <laughs> we were having some of these conversations wrestling through this in my early thirties. And I remember like, you know, we were going to have this like planning session. We're going to really hammer out like a joint shared sense of calling and, and really give her space to dream and imagine. And uh, I remember going to uh, sit, sit down at a restaurant. I had my pen out, you know, wanting to take copious notes and just like, okay, we're going to let her dream and open up the notebook and saying, okay, what do you want to do with your life? And she's like, I have no idea. I know I'm exhausted and I don't even know where to start. Nobody's ever asked. Nobody's asked me that question really since college. 
And, you know, sadly, right. Like in the spaces that we were in, it was really just like you said, it was mostly about, again, nothing bad, just being a wife and a mother. So, you know, what, what would you say to somebody who's just beginning that process and is wanting to discern with God, what he might be calling them towards in terms of their vocation? Well, I think you don't ask them what they want to do. (laughs) I've learned that. Yes. I've learned that. That, that, that I have found to being in a similar place at different points in my life as Emily at that point, that, that, that it it feels like a weight of self-creation. Like, because the culture has framed so many of the questions and the conversation this way, it's like, what do you want to do? Go fulfill your passion. What are you going to bring to the table? It, it can feel paralyzing because, number one, you haven't been taught to think that way. And you haven't been asked that. And, and you, you haven't really had permission to even think that way. So what I would suggest to people is to ask questions like, how has God put you together? Um, What do you do well? Uh, Where uh, do you find joy in your work? Um, And and pay more attention less to uh, you necessarily, like your self-creation and ask the questions of who did God make you to be? Mm-hmm. And take that kind of self-assessment, almost as if you're outside of yourself observing. And one of the things Nathan and I have come up against repeatedly is we probably would write the story of our life differently if we were the author. And we, we say this to each other, that it's like, if, if I were creating Hannah, I would not create her this way. Or if I was writing Nathan's life, I wouldn't put this plot twist in this story and I would change this maybe family relationship or I would change this background or this piece of the puzzle but God hasn't done that and and if we are to submit and to surrender to him as the author as the one who has authority over the story of our lives that involves a level of recognition of his providence and acceptance and embrace of it and I like to tell folks like when when I would you know, be all that I am, right? You know, this, you know, maybe slightly strong-willed person in, you know, a pastor's wife's role. I, I would just tell people, look, I don't like this any more than you do. And if I could be someone different, I would be. But God has asked me to surrender to who he has created me to be. And he's asking you to surrender to who he's created me to be as well. And so we're all coming under the authority and the providence of God in gifting us, in giving us particular lives, in calling us into particular spaces. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't have agency. It doesn't mean that we can't make decisions under the providence and authority of God. But there is in that beginning piece, just taking assessment and and taking time to ask, who has God made me to be? And I assume like just practically, what does that look like for you? I mean, you know, there's obviously personality tests, you know, there's um, the Enneagram is really popular. There's tools like the Enneagram, which some, some would be mad that I just called it a personality test, but um, you've got the Enneagram, you've got Myers-Briggs, you have, you know, all kinds of different uh, tools like that. What are some of the things that have been helpful to you, you know, I think about your writing. I mean, at some point, I assume you just, you sat down and you just started writing and you started putting it out there for the world to see and to test, is this who God's made me to be? You know, I don't know, just, and, and, and doing that in community, right. In a community of people who can give you real feedback and can help you see more clearly. 
it was very much a, a testing phase. And I, and I would say you have permission to go through the testing phase. You have permission to not get it right the first time you're trying to discover these things. Uh, for me, it, it came to, I knew I wanted to obey the call of God in my life. I was a wife and mother at that time. I wanted my daughter to see a woman who lived fearlessly in obedience to the call of God on her life. And I knew that that meant I had to do that first. And so stepping out in faith and pursuing that vocational call began with committing to small things like I'm going to commit to writing um, an essay once a week. I'm, I'm going to commit to publishing it on a blog. Back then it was, you know, blogs. Um, I'm going to commit to some kind of accountability structure that I am actively taking steps in the direction that I believe God is leading me. And then I remember this explicitly. Um, I was thinking I would begin to pursue writing. And I had this moment with God where I said, well, if I went back to school to take some kind of vocational degree, we'll use that language, um, you know, if I went back to be an LPN or a cosmetology major or something like that, it would probably take 18 months to a year. So I remember saying, I'll give this 18 months to two years to see what happens and I will be faithful in the process and God can do whatever he wants with it. And it was within those 18 months to two years that God started doing things with it and started providentially setting up, um, you know, meetings and opportunities that I could never have got myself. But I discovered through the process of faithfully stepping forward into the unknown, stepping in pursuit of something I believed he was potentially calling me to. So it's that give and take, it's that call and response again of where I think I might be headed this direction and I'm going to start the steps that way. But God still can do whatever he wants with it. He still is sovereign. He still is providentially guiding this whole process as well. Mm, yeah, that's really good. I think that's, that's a really helpful way to think about it. it. It takes some of the pressure off again of trying to feel like you have to get it right, but also puts the onus on, you know, on some action and some experimentation and some risk, which in any you know, creative endeavor and in any kind of calling, there's a an, kind of inescapability of risk. And, um, and so, yeah, I think, and also, you know, one of the things you talked about Sunday is just starting where you're at with the what's around you and just saying, you know, who can I love with what I have right now and the relationships around me, who has God called me to love and not just thinking about our work, but just thinking about our, our neighborhoods, thinking about, um, even if you're sing, you know, single or unmarried, thinking about the, the, the church you serve in the children that God's placed around you, uh, you know, um, the elderly, I mean, there's just so many opportunities to begin to live out a vocation. And Paul says, you know, essentially seize the present opportunity. Don't, don't wait until you escape your condition and, you know, don't punt that down the road, but just begin with what's right around you and begin to take some creative risk. Right. Right. And I've heard one definition of calling that's, you know, slightly more philosophical, secular, not necessarily theological that says, um, your calling is where uh, your gifts and capacities meet the world's needs. Mm -hmm. And to the point of saying, what is your world needs? What are the needs of your world? Not just the world at large, but your community, your family, um, your church, your loved ones. 
what kinds of things do you feel the pressing desire to to help alleviate? And I think that's the question of loving our neighbors well. It's not just what makes me feel fulfilled. It's also what are the needs and how can I be used of God to alleviate these needs and, and to recognize that each one of us will be drawn in different ways to particular needs based on who God has arranged us to be. So even within my work, I felt like I was responding to a particular need that was pressing in on me within my giftedness. But I have a friend who, who sees and recognizes a different need and is drawn by the Holy Spirit to meet that one. And yet it's all out of love for neighbor and all out of love for God. Mm. Okay, real quickly, um, for those who are frustrated in their vocations, who feel stuck, who feel discouraged, what resources does Paul offer us um, in terms of a, a gospel-driven hope if we feel like we're not fulfilling our calling or we feel like we're just, you know, we've hit a wall? How, how do we find hope and how does, how does the gospel help redeem vocation? Um, and, and we'll kind of close with this. Well, th that's the other thing we talked about on Sunday is even if we catch a vision for our vocations and we start to move in these directions and we have a great deal of, um, you know, optimism and energy and enthusiasm, it doesn't take very long before you run into the brokenness of the world and you run into the hurdles and the limits that are upon you, whether it's just your human limits or the limits of um, your circumstances or the brokenness of the world where you try and you try and you try for something and it doesn't produce or doesn't reward you the way you think it should. And so, you know, that that is one of the underlying assumptions that Paul makes all throughout First Corinthians. He knows that the vocations that we're called to are playing out in a broken context. And what's so beautiful is that he points to Jesus Christ's own vocation of being obedient to the cross and to death as the kind of hope that we have that our vocations um, are not going to be wasted despite all the hurdles and struggles that we face. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he, he refers to this hope, this hope of the resurrection that Jesus Christ himself was um, brought back to life, despite it looking like his vocation had failed. He's brought back to life. And it's because of this hope that we continue in our own vocations, knowing that God is not going to overlook the work that we do, that he is going to honor it. And it may not work out the way we necessarily think, but there will be a redemption and a fulfillment of what we've invested into our callings, that God ultimately in his providence and sovereignty is going to be faithful not to overlook the work we do. Mm. So we're not going to get lost in the wilderness of calling. We're not going to fail to ultimately discover and live out God's will for our lives. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That That's that's it. I think if we just answered that question alone, we've probably taken care of 90% of the anxiety around vocation, right? Yes. You're not going to get lost. And whatever feels like failure is not failure. It's not mm. going to be failure because the impulse of the gospel is resurrection and redemption and what we deem as failures um christ redeems and god uses for so many things that we will never 
see and brings good from it um, based on his power and his faithfulness. Mm. Well, this is such a good conversation, Hannah, and I'm really looking forward to this series. Thank you. Uh, I know it's been a lot of work that you have put into this, uh, that we've put into this together, and I'm really excited. We're going to be exploring these different callings that God has placed in our lives, called to um, a body, called to family, called to um, celibacy, and um, thinking about biological and spiritual family, called to work and church. So I'm really looking forward to exploring these with you. And uh and yeah, thanks for just your thoughts here today. So we will uh, we'll look forward to seeing you back here next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.